Uh, this morning, I want to continue our series, and I want to talk to us from the subject of overcoming the world. Overcoming the world. First John chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. And by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. But for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it? that overcomes the world except for the one that believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. God, in particular, I thank you for this book. God, that you have so carefully stitched together over and over and over again to give us assurance of our salvation and of our faith. And this morning, Lord, I pray that you would orient our hearts around your word, that we would Uh, Take these words in deeply that you've given us, Lord, because we know that without you, we can do nothing. Without the foundation of your word, we have nothing to stand on, Lord. But because of your word, because of your grace and because of your mercy, because you have revealed yourself to us, God, we we can have a faith that overcomes the world. Lord, be with us in our time. I pray you'd give us fresh eyes to see. Fresh hearts to receive, Lord God, what you might say. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1941, C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters. It's a fictional book. It's kind of a satire, really. And it's about uh, how the enemy presses in against uh, the life of believers, actually. And it's really interesting because the book itself gives us a really clear picture, although it's fictional, about what it looks like uh, to be tempted and to endure. And there's a scene in the book where this fictional character, this uncle, is writing to his nephew, and he talks about how hard it is for humans to persevere. And this is what he says. He says that the routine of adversity, the gradual decay of our youthful loves and our youthful hopes, the quiet despair of every, uh, or excuse me, of ever overcoming chronic temptation, it provides the admirable opportunity for wearing out a soul. The routine of adversity and conflict and temptation, it provides the admirable opportunity for wearing out a soul. And when I think about that, I can't help but agree, right? I mean, if there was ever a time in history where we felt weary or one could feel weary, now is it, isn't it? I mean, we live in a world that is uh, very, very hard. COVID-19 is not helping. We live in a world that's full of racial injustice and inequality and poverty and pain and loss. And people uh, across the entire globe are experiencing difficulty. And throughout our series, what John has been saying thus far is that despite life's difficulties, we can have certainty. Despite the pain that we feel, we can have assurance. And this morning, he wants us to know that not only do we have assurance that we are saved by God, but that we will overcome the world. You know this well, the context for our passage, John is Jesus' best friend on earth, right? And he's an old man. He's writing to a growing church. And this letter is full of themes. And one of the themes that we've talked about in this series is that it's all about giving the church confidence, 
It's all about giving the church assurance. And for our time, I want us to consider four questions, four questions to help us understand what John is telling us, and then maybe three thoughts on how to apply it. Question one, how do I know that I'm in God's family? How do I know that I'm in God's family? Well, let's look at the text. Verse one, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. So the first way we know we're in his family is that we believe Jesus is the Christ. He says everyone. In the Greek, it literally means everyone, right? There's no mystery here. Not some. He doesn't say many people. He says not more than average or those who figure it out. Everyone who believes. And the idea of belief here is a continual belief. It's not just a one-and-done thing. It's not about when you got baptized when you were nine or the time that you said that you loved Jesus when you were eight. It's a continual present reality of faith in your life. Everyone who believes, believes what? Well, he gives us a very specific belief that we are to believe in, that Jesus is the Christ. It's a very specific thing because it's not belief that Jesus was a good teacher. It's not belief that Jesus was a mighty prophet. It's not belief that he did a lot of good stuff or that he had a great message or that he helped a lot of people. It's not belief that the miracles of Jesus are true. It's belief that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the long-awaited Messiah. He's the the deliverer of God's people. It's belief that Jesus is God. As Hebrews tells us, that he is the image of the invisible God and that through him all things were made. It's the belief that Jesus is Emmanuel, that he is God with us. It's the belief that his sinless life and his death and his resurrection have provided a way for us to be reconciled to God. Because you and I are born in sin and we we owe a debt that we can't pay. And Jesus is perfect and he paid a debt that we didn't owe. Everyone who believes Jesus is God has been born of him. So how do I know I'm in his family? I believe Jesus is the Christ. Secondly, I believe, or excuse me, that I love the Father. He says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father. And one of the ways that we know we're in God's family is that we have a correct understanding of who God is. He is one God, eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And what John is teaching us is that to love God is to love him on his his terms, not ours. It's to love God in the way that he's revealed himself and not in the way that we desire him to be. And the danger that you and I face is that we often struggle because we want to make God into a God of our own image. And we turn that around in our relationships and we want to make our husband or our wife or our kids into our image and not in the image of Jesus. But you can't love Jesus and not love the Father. He and the Father are one. The Son, the Spirit, and the Father are one. We know we're in God's family because we believe that he's the Christ and also because we love the Father. But also in this verse, he tells us we know we're in his family because we love the Father's children. Anyone born of God loves his children. If you recall in 1 John 4, if anyone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God who he cannot see. So how do I know that I'm in God's family? I love, uh, I, I love the Father. I believe Jesus is the Christ. I love the Father's children. Second question, how do I know if I love God's people? Because that's really the question, isn't it? If I have to love God and his children, well, how do I know if I'm actually loving his children? 
Well, verse 2 tells us, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and we obey his commandments. When we love God and obey his commandments, that leaves us to ask the question, what commandments are we talking about? It's the same question that was asked in the Old Testament in the book of Micah, chapter 6. And the question that's being asked is, with what do I show my love? What is it that I have to do to show my love for God? And here's what the man asks. He says, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year, or a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? What is it that I have to do that God will love me? And here's what the prophet says in verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. This is the great requirement. Maybe a more familiar passage of Matthew 22. A person comes to him and says, teacher, what is, what is the greatest commandment? And he says in verse 37, you shall love the Lord God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments, Jesus says, depend or hangs on. They can be summed up in all the law and the prophets right here. This is not only is it the great requirements, the great commandment. John is saying the assurance we have that we love God's people is predicated upon the fact that we first love him. We know we love God's people because we love God. And this idea always makes me think about blended families, particularly if you have like a divorce situation or you have two people who are widows or widowers that have come together and, and they, they both come to the marriage with kids. Well, if you're in that situation, you can't love me and not love my children, right? It just wouldn't work. The marriage would never happen. Well, John is saying we know that we love God because we obey his commandments and he's reinforcing for us something that has been uh, thread throughout the whole scripture. Love God, love people. And loving people looks like Isaiah 1, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, and plead the widow's cause. These are the things that the Lord delights in. These are the things that show us that we love God's people. Question one, how do I know I'm in God's family? Question two, how do I know I love God's people? Question three, what does loving God look like? Verse three, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. Loving God looks like obedience. You see, whether we like it or not, obedience is the litmus test for love. It's not the basis of our faith, but it is an indicator of it. And this is where we kind of see the difference between religion and the gospel. Religion says, I have to obey in order to make God love me. But the gospel says, God already has shown his love for me. Now, Lord, help me to obey you. Because, see, you can keep all the rules and not love God. But you can't love God and not have a heart that desires to keep the rules. This was the indictment against the Pharisees, you remember. In Matthew 23, Jesus confronts them and he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and yet you have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. It's a both and, loving God and loving people. And where the scripture gives us a both and, we don't have the luxury of choosing either or. 
But there's more here because, see, if you're, if you're not a believer, maybe you're new to Christianity, or maybe you've been a Christian for a long time, it kinda, there's this kind of weird question of, like, how does me obeying the rules prove my love? And it's really simple, actually, because if you think about it, you can't love God and then not choose to act in a way that honors him. My daughter can tell me she loves me all day, but if she never obeys me, I have to begin the question, well, does she actually value me? Does she honor me? Does she, does she love me? And in some ways, the cultural waters that you and I swim in kind of teach that rules are oppressive, right? But John seems to, to address this on some level, actually. He anticipates the question about whether God's commands are oppressive. He says God's commands aren't oppressive. They're not burdensome. The word burdensome here carries the idea of being heavy in weight, to bring infirmity. It means to be forceful. And John says God's commands aren't like that. They don't oppress. God's commands bring freedom. You recall Jesus in Matthew 11 says, Come to me, all who are laboring or heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I'm gentle and I'm lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. Why? Verse 30, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The reason God's commands aren't burdensome isn't because they're not heavy. It's because for the Christian, we don't carry them alone. It's because Jesus has already carried the burden on our behalf. God's commands aren't heavy for us because of him. Make no mistake, without Jesus, God's commands just aren't heavy. They're impossible. We can never measure up. The scripture teaches no one is righteous, not one. We don't have the ability to carry the weight of our sin and judgment in the backdrop of God's holiness. But because of Jesus, God's commands become a basis for our freedom. God invites us to obey, not to weigh us down, but to free us up. Because unlike the world and unlike ourselves, and unlike people around us, God always operates with our best interests at heart. God's commands don't oppress. They liberate because they free us up to live the way that life was designed to live. Tim Keller says, if you knew what God knew, you would ask for exactly what God gives, including his rules. Because with God's commands comes God's blessing and his protection. And what God knows is that our hearts are always bent toward rebellion. They're always bent towards self and towards destruction. They're bent towards serving ourselves and neglecting other people. And God gives us rules to help us live the type of life that is honoring and pleasing to him, yes, but also a life that seeks the well-being of other people and the flourishing of all of creation. God's commands call us to something greater than ourselves. They call us to something greater than ourselves. So, how do I know I'm in God's family? What does it look like to love God's children? What does it look like to love God? Fourthly, fourth question, what does loving God give me? Now, that sounds self-seeking, but it's an interesting question. Stay with me. It says in verse 4, for everyone that has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? What does loving God give me? It gives me freedom. But it also gives me victory. It gives me victory over the penalty of sin. It gives me victory over the power of sin. And one day, when Jesus returns, it gives us victory over the presence of sin. And interesting, the word... Uh, 
for victory here is the word Nike. Uh, you know it is Nike. Swoosh, just do it, Michael Jordan, whatever. Um, and it's the only time in the Bible that that word is used. And it's significant because the way we use Nike uh, is the sense that it's our effort and our commitment and our desire to win, our drive, that gives us freedom and victory. It's our mamba mentality. It's our desire to be the best that actually gives us victory. And even when I think about that, I'm thinking about these Nike commercials right now. The NBA is getting ready to start. LeBron's doing scrimmages. And it shows people dribbling and practicing and lifting weights and running and doing all this stuff. And the message is, if you grind hard enough, you can make it. If you just put in the work, you'll get the result you desire. But there's, there's a little bit of a misnomer there because sometimes we work really hard and we come up short. Because at the end of the day, it's not our effort that actually gets us there. And what John is saying is that if you're a child of God, you have victory over the world already because your faith gives you that. Because in the scripture, victory comes by faith and not by your performance. You see, victory in the world is acquired. It's based on your strength. It's based on your power. It's based on your commitment. It's based on your strategy. It's based on your gifting. It's based on raw talent. But victory in the kingdom is not acquired, it's secured, not by your power, not by your choices, not by your work, not by your strength, but by the strength of another. Overcoming the world at its foundation isn't about what we do, it's about what's been done for us. The opposite is also true, though, because what he's also telling us is that without Jesus, you cannot overcome the world. You might get really close. You might do a lot of amazing things. You might accomplish a lot of great feats. It reminds me of a recent story I read about this guy named Iliad Kipjogi. I can never say his name correctly. Kenyan man, 35, world's fastest runner, just broke a marathon record in less than two hours, ran an hour and 59 minutes and some change. Insane. But the thing is, right, what helped him get there is he had 41 professional runners who at every stage of the run were his pacemen. And so he followed them and he ran and he ran and he ran and he ran. And here's the thing. He breaks the record. He crosses the finish line. Never, this has never happened before. And when he gets there, the reality is the record doesn't count because it wasn't true marathon conditions and because he had 41 pace setters. See, he worked really hard, but in a sense, he still kind of came up short, right? The same is true for us. If we don't run behind the pace setter who has already finished the race, we will come up short. Because the problem with the world is, is that it overpromises and underdelivers every single time. But with Jesus, though the enemy wars against you, he has no power. Though your sinful heart leads you astray, it has no lasting power. Though the world presses you in on every side, like 2 Corinthians 4, Paul talks about we were, we were despairing of life itself, right? We felt like we were being pressed in, like we were grapes being crushed in the wine press. Though the world cr uh, crushes you on all sides, it has no power either. So what do we do with all this, right? So how, how, how do I know that I love God? How do I know I love his people? Um, what does it look like to be in his family? How do I know that I'm there? What does loving God give me? But what, what do we do with all of that? Three thoughts, maybe. The first one is this. We overcome the world by love and not fear. 
I won't belabor the point because Pastor Ryan did an incredible job of that in his recent sermon, but I'll just say this. Biblical love is not rooted in a feeling. It's rooted in a person, and his name is Jesus. The scriptures teach us that God is love, that we love because he first loved us. Love is an action. It means doing for another person what's in their best interest. And the only reason that you or I know what love is is because God modeled love for us. John tells us that the love of God and the love of people is what overcomes the world. He tells us that when we live in ungodly fear, fear of man and fear of rejection and fear of failure, when we live in fear of other people's expectations and not measuring up, not only do we not overcome the world, but the world begins to overcome us. But with godly fear, with a reverence and awe of God, with a heart that seeks to honor him, we overcome Perfect love casts out fear, John says, and perfect love overcomes the world. Secondly, we overcome the world by grace, not grit. Grace just doesn't save us. It also enables us to endure. There is an effort on our part. We know that to be sure, but it's not your grit that gets you there. And the problem is that so many of us operate from what I would call a, is a bootstrap theology. We believe that we have to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We believe that grace saves us but then it's our effort that keeps us saved. And the problem is, is that we wear our hustle and our, our grit and our grind and we, we work really hard and we value blue collar and we, we do all these things and we act like that we're self-made people. But the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches that, God, that God's grace is the basis of our victory. You'll recall Philippians 1, Paul writes and says that he who began a good work in you will see it through and bring it to completion. It's God's good pleasure to will and to work in your life to make you more like his son. It's not your grit that gets you to where God's calling you. It's his grace. Obedience is central to following Jesus, but his grace is what enables us to obey. Grace gets you there, not grit. Thirdly, we come, uh, excuse me, we overcome the world by faith and not feeling. Now, I'm not saying feelings are bad, right? Clearly, they're important. God himself has feelings. The scriptures are laden with texts that show us that the Father feels, the Spirit feels, the Son feels. God has created us as emotional beings who feel deeply. That's good. But if we're not careful, we can put these things in their improper order. If we're not careful, we'll emphasize feelings as the basis of our hope and the driver of everything we do. And that's not what God has called us to. To live by faith is to take God at his word. Even when your feelings don't, aren't there, right? Hebrews 11.6 says, whoever would come to him must believe that he is, that God is who he says he is. Either God is the creator of the universe and holds it all in the palm of his hand like Job tells us, or he isn't. Whoever would come to him must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who seeks him. But because God is, our faith is secure. Our faith is certain. It is stable. And the only way that we overcome the world is if we plant our feet firmly in the soil of the finished work of Jesus. So how do we overcome the world? We overcome by love, not fear. We overcome by grace and not grit. We overcome by faith and not feeling. Well, we started with C.S. Lewis. We'll end with him. Same scene in the book on the heels of talking about how, much, or how time and temptation wear out the human soul. 
In the same scene where Lewis talks about uh, success being our enemy, in the same scene where Lewis talks about temptation wearing us down, he says this, prosperity knits a man to the world. He feels he's finding his place in it when really it's finding his place in him. Therefore, Lewis says that this middle-aged prosperity, his increasing reputation, his widening circle of acquaintances, his self-importance, and the growing pressure of absorbing and agreeable work, they build up in us a sense that really we are at home on earth. Catch that. Prosperity, it knits our, wor- our souls to the world. And we start to think we're starting to catch our stride and we're starting to find our place when really the world's starting to find its place in us. Brothers and sisters, this world as we know it is not our home. You see, ultimately what this text teaches us is that you cannot overcome a world that you are knit to. You cannot overcome a world that you're in love with. You overcome the world by loving and following the only one who has overcome the world. You overcome the world by knitting yourself to Jesus. You overcome the world by stepping out in faith and taking God at his word, even when it doesn't make sense. Even when your expectations defy reality and when you're, uh, you just lost a loved one to sickness and when you've been diagnosed with cancer, even when your bank account is draining, you overcome the world by following the only one who's ever been able to overcome anything. Because what John is teaching us ultimately is that our faith won't, or excuse me, our, our money won't do it, our careers won't do it, our jobs won't do it, our spouses won't do it, our children won't do it for us. We can't overcome the world by our talent. I mean, if anything, COVID has proven that, that there is an equalizer. It doesn't matter how much money you got. It doesn't matter uh, uh, where you live or what you're doing. Uh, we're not immortal, not in the sense that we believe it. And the only way to overcome the world is by knitting yourself to the one who has overcome the world. Now, where does that leave us? That's the question. Because some of you are watching this and you're going, yes, amen, that's me all day. And that's good and I'm glad. But some of us are thinking about this and we're sitting in the midst of some pretty heavy pain. And it sure doesn't feel like God's there. We sure are struggling to see his fingerprints over our finances. We sure are struggling to see it over the sickness of our loved one. We sure are seeing it when we are on unemployment for weeks and it looks like it's going to run out in a couple of days. What are we going to do? And I would just invite us maybe to ask the question, on whom am I depending to get through this? What is it that I'm looking to to help me endure? Am I I resting in myself? Am I resting in my social network? Am I struggling and straining because my hustle and my grit and my commitment will get me there? Or am I looking to the work of another? Am I looking to the work of the one who has accomplished all that is needed to overcome the world? Ultimately, we overcome by knitting ourselves to Jesus. May God make us a people who are not so in love with the world that we've forgotten where we actually live. We are citizens of a, new, of a new place, right? Our citizenship's not just in earth, it's in heaven. May God make us a people who look to him, to look to him to overcome because he's already overcome the world. Let's pray together.
Jesus, we thank you. We thank you because your word says that you've run the race before us. And we thank you, Lord, because not only have you run, but you have defeated sin, you have defeated death. We thank you, Lord, because you bring freedom. It's for freedom that we've been set free. I pray, Father, that you would help us to remember that you are a good, good God. And yes, we are living in the midst of a pandemic, and it is overwhelming, but you are not overwhelmed by it. Lord, you allow what you hate to accomplish the things that you love. And what you love is making us more like your son. God, I pray you'd give us an unshakable hope. An unshakable hope that, that you're making all things new, that, that one day all that is broken will be fixed. God, would you give us confidence in you? God, would you help us to act even when our feelings are all mixed up? Lord, I want to thank you that we don't have to run this race alone. Help us not to knit our hearts to the world, but to you, so that we too can have the victory that you've given. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.